One of the things that cannot be overstated is the value of just getting together uh, people who wish they were seeing more of each other and networking more and then uh, providing the opportunity to do so. So I'm really thrilled that you're all here today. I'm Ned Kalange, President and CEO of the Colorado Trust. I want to first welcome what is a full room uh, here at the Trust, but then also recognize the 100 or more folks who are joining us via streaming video. This is a new uh, communication strategy for us at the Trust to try to expand the reach and the, the audience beyond what we can fit into this building itself. Um, we're here today with a special, for a special presentation from Dr. Paula Braveman, who is a leading national expert on health equity. We're also really pleased that noted journalist and author T.R. Reed is also with us today. T.R. or Tom, who I guess knows a thing or two about healthcare, will facilitate a discussion with Dr. Braveman following her initial remarks. And then the idea is to engage all of you in the discussion. So you may be asking about why this focus on health equity. Most of you know that the Colorado Trust has long focused its support first and foremost on addressing the health needs of the most disadvantaged Coloradans, even as we remain committed to achieving access to health for all Coloradans. Among the steps that can help us achieve the goal is the sharing of information and creating the discussion that turns into action and change. Towards that end, we're also sharing today a new uh, issue brief with you. You'll find at your tables a piece titled Health Equity and the Affordable Care Act. It provides an overview of our in-depth report, which is now available online at coloradotrust.org, and offers an, uh, an outline of the provisions within the Affordable Care Act and related efforts in Colorado that can help us specifically reduce health disparities. In the coming months, there'll be additional issue briefs based on what we learned in our Equality in Health initiative, and they'll include language access and health equity, diversifying the healthcare workforce, collecting data on race and ethnicity and other issues. Our Colorado Health Access Survey also provides data about health coverage, access and utilization, which includes race and socioeconomic data. For example, the CHAS tells us that Hispanic Coloradans are disproportionately uninsured at 33% while making up only 20% of the state's population. Finally, I want to mention an in-depth environmental scan we undertook last year. This was designed to help us learn more about health disparities and health equity. In the course of our work these past few years to achieve access to health, it was underscored over and over that certain groups experienced significantly greater challenges to accessing quality health care and experiencing good health outcomes compared with other groups. We undertook polling, focus groups, and 30-some-odd community forums across the state put us into direct contact with more than 1,000 Coloradans from whom we heard a whole array of concepts and thoughts around health equity. A majority of people told us they know and understand that there are differences in health care that people receive in Colorado that are based solely on their race, their ethnicity, their income, or where they live. We believe that one of the best ways to address inequities and social challenges is to do what we're doing today. Taking dedicated time to share information, learn from experts, and actively discuss how to achieve change. 
<clears throat> so to get us started, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Paula Braveman. Dr. Braveman serves as the director of the Center of Social Disparities and Health within the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She's widely renowned for her efforts to health policy and health leaders better understand and address wide and persistent disparities in health and healthcare between social groups in the United States and worldwide. As I mentioned earlier, following her remarks, Dr. Braveman will be joined by T.R. Reed, who is well known for his longtime reporting for the Washington Post, his NPR commentaries, and his authorship of such works as The Healing of America, A Global Quest for Better, Cheaper, and Fairer Healthcare. Mr. Reed will moderate the discussion with Dr. Braveman, followed by the discussion with all of you. So please help me in welcoming Dr. Paula Braveman. Thank you, Ned, for that lovely introduction. Um, and uh, I want to say it's a real pleasure for me to be here today. Uh, I'm very impressed with what the trust does. And last night I had a chance to meet with some of the leadership people from the trust and people who, who also were in leadership in other organizations locally. And I was so impressed with how thoughtful and, and committed everyone is. It's a real particular pleasure for me. So I'm going to be talking about the issue of an issue of definitions. What do we mean by health disparities? What do we mean by health equity? And why does it matter? Why should we be spending time on the definitions? So I'll give you a minute to look at this. And I'm showing you this cartoon to make a point. When we're talking about disparities, when we're talking about equity, we're not talking about averages. So averages are really important. What's the average life expectancy in Colorado? What's the average life expectancy in the US? The averages are important. But when we're talking about disparities and equity, we're specifically focusing on how those who are worse off are faring in relation to those who are better off. If you look up the term disparity, in the dictionary, and or the, the term inequality. And that term inequality is what's used in the rest of the world when people talk about these concepts. In the rest of the world, people talk about health inequalities, and the first thing that they think of is uh, inequalities by socioeconomic status, by income, wealth, education, etc. And then after that, they might think of racial or ethnic disparities. They might think about gender. They might think about other kinds of disparities. Whereas here in the US, the term, as it's used now, was really coined as part of a movement that was really focusing on racial and ethnic disparities. So I think often when you hear the word disparity, the, the person who's using it may be thinking very specifically of racial or ethnic disparities. I'm, I advocate a broader use of the term, and I think that it, it is gradually coming uh, more into, into wider use, where it refers not only to racial and ethnic disparities, but basically disparities by any characteristic that makes people economically or socially better off or worse off. But if you look in the dictionary at the definition of, it, of disparity or inequality, it just says differences or variations. So no value judgment attached to that, just something that's purely descriptive. 
And uh, apart from Healthy People 2020, um, which has a very good definition of health disparities and, and health equity, and, and I'll be talking about that later, apart from Healthy People 2020, if you look at, at any federal agency and look at the way that they define health disparity, it has been, in a very, very general way, health differences, differences in health between specific population groups without saying who the groups are or what the criteria would be for deciding um, that this comparison is, is worthy of the term or not. So we say health disparities, which the dictionary says just means differences, any old differences. But when we use the term, we don't mean all health differences. We mean we're referring to a particular subset of health differences that strike us as particularly unfair. I think the most eloquent and the best known definition of health inequalities um, was coined by Margaret Whitehead, who's in the UK. And she defined health inequality as a difference in health that's unfair, avoidable, and unjust. And that's great at capturing the sense of what we're talking about when we talk about health disparities. But unfortunately, there's not much agreement about ideas of fairness. What I might say is unfair, you might say you think is fine, and even what's avoidable we, uh, could be a matter of a lot of dispute. So not all health differences are unfair. I mean, would you be morally outraged if I told you that skiers were much more likely to have arm or leg fractures than non-skiers. Okay, not really. How about this one? Women live longer than men. Is there anybody here who's morally outraged? I'm not talking about just being outraged, but yes, I thought all the men, all the men would raise their hands. And later, if you if you're interested in that, we we you know we can talk more about that. Or if I told you that in Manhattan. Wealthy people who live in Manhattan have a particular health problem that you don't see among wealthy people in Hollywood, California. Would you say that public and private resources for, to narrow health disparities should be devoted to narrowing that health gap? Because it is a health difference, and according to the dictionary definition of disparity, that would qualify, right? Okay, now here one. This one is really, really important, that younger adults are generally healthier than the elderly. Now, the older I get, the more absolutely unfair I think that that is. You know, but I, re I really doubt that I'm gonna be able to organize a social movement around it. Um, now, here's another one which, like the women living longer than men, is, is trickier than some of the others. White women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer. So if you've got an agency that works on health disparities, that's certainly a health difference. Um, should that agency devote its resources to focusing on breast cancer incidents in white women, higher breast cancer incidents in white women? What about if I gave you some additional information, which is that although white women are more likely to get breast cancer, it's black women are much more likely to die from it. Um, so you might have a different, you might have a different take. So, uh, you know, there's the, the question of who determines what's fair. It's not an obvious 
determination all the time. And who determines what's avoidable? Thinking again of the Whitehead definition of unfair, avoidable, unjust. You know, how about this one? Uh, poor people are generally sicker than rich people. Okay, some people would say that's not avoidable because the poor will always be with us. You can't do anything about poverty. And because poor people, um, because poor people are irresponsible in how they take care of their health, they will always be sicker. Um, you know, I'm obviously caric caricaturing this. It's an, an, an extreme, but I, but I want to make the point that not everybody um, will agree about uh, which differences are unfair and which differences um, are not. So what about the situation that often arises? What about conditions for which the causes aren't known? Um, so a baby born to an African-American mother is two or more times more likely to be born with low birth weight or to be born prematurely than a baby born to a white mother, a non-Latino white mother. And um, these, these are really important conditions. Low birth weight and premature delivery are the strongest predictors, not only of infant mortality, but they're very strong predictors of child development, including neurological development, neurological, cognitive, and physical development. And what we've come to know in the last 10 to 15 years that they are, and particularly low birth weight, is a very strong predictor of who's going to have adult chronic disease later, later in adulthood. So these are really important differences in health to have on an agenda to close the gap. But there's a problem, which is that we really don't know much about the causes of the disparities. That the, uh, there are some risk factors that have been pretty well established as risk factors for low birth weight, risk factors for preterm birth, but they don't account for the black-white difference. So according to some ways of defining health disparity or health equity, um, we might not be able to, uh, we might not be able to have this issue on the agenda. So if you don't know the causes, how can you call that disparity unfair? I don't want to take up a lot of time um, now with this, but briefly I'd like to say that I got interested in this issue because of um, a situation that happened in a large international organization with which I was working, where there was an initiative that I was working on on health equity, health inequalities. <clears throat> and then some new leadership came in, and the new people decided that they wanted to redefine what health inequalities and health equity meant. And they did it in a way um, that's not worth taking up the time today um, to talk about, but they did it in a way that pulled out all of the, the value, all of the values, all of the social justice content, and made turned it into a, a completely technical thing, where it was really just about any health differences between any, not even groups, even any individuals. Um, and uh, in seeing what the response to that was, I saw how many people, uh, including colleagues of mine, were unable to, uh, to explain or counter that proposal and say why that was wrong and that what it 
had to do with was that they were not clear that the essence, when you're asking about health disparities, when you're raising questions about health disparities and you're working on health equity, you're doing it because of a profound commitment to social justice. And so removing the social justice content from the comparison, turning it into something technical, it was a really, it was a really neat little thing that they were advocating that uh, statisticians would, would love and statistically inclined epidemiologists would have a lot of fun with, but there was one problem with it. It had nothing to do with what the heart of the matter was. It wasn't answering the, the, the question. So what I became aware of was the need to put these concepts on a firm footing. And it seemed to me that it was very important that we be able to refer to authoritative, um, authoritative uh, sources uh, that had some degree of universality about them. It, it wouldn't do to just, you know, say, well, quote, quote some individuals um, on this particular thing. It seemed to me that it was very important to put it on a firm footing. So the first place that I looked was in the field of ethics. And there definitely was help there. In the field of ethics, one of the principles is distributive justice. And the idea of distributive justice is that resources needed for health should be distributed according to need, not according to privilege. But the defining the term need and operationalizing it for purposes of measurement has eluded just about everybody. Um, and so that didn't seem to give something that was strong enough. I mean, it gave something that, that was in, in, enriching. And I uh, learned about human rights agreements human rights agreements and, and human rights principles. Uh, and felt after studying them for a while and working with a, a human rights um, attorney that this was just an enormous resource for people concerned about health disparities and about health equity and that it really gave us a lot to provide a firm conceptual basis. So among the human rights principles that I think are very important here is that there are not just the civil and political rights that most of us think of when we think of human rights. We think of the freedom of speech and assembly and freedom from torture. Um, uh, we think of the civil and political rights. But there are also, in international human rights um, uh, agreements, there's a body of economic, social, and cultural rights and specifically, there's the doctrine uh, that those rights are inseparable. So if you violate someone's economic and social rights, you're also violating their civil and political rights. And I actually think there's a, a basis for that one could argue that based on em empiric, um, empiric evidence, but there's, there's no time uh, for that. The, so among the social and economic rights is the so-called right to health. Um, and that is defined there as the right to achieve the highest attainable standard of health. And admittedly, I, I think that that's been it, the, um, it's been very hard for people to operationalize what that means, what's the highest attainable state of health. And I think that those of us in the field of health equity and health disparities actually have something to contribute in suggesting something that they could, that, that they could use. And you'll, see that later. But those social and economic rights also include rights to education, to a living standard that's adequate for health. So that's 
that's huge, um, to the benefits of progress uh, and the right to for uh, full participation in, in society. And there is the notion there that governments who are signatory and who, uh, governments who are signatory to the human rights agreements should progressively remove obstacles that are in the way to the fulfillment of all the human rights of all people. And then I've highlighted in yellow there the clause, especially for those who have more obstacles. And it's th those who have more social and economic obstacles because those are so clearly modifiable. Um, and the idea of this is that you know, a government couldn't be held accountable. They could sign a treaty this day and that particularly for resource poor countries, it was gonna take them a while to, uh, to achieve the fulfillment of all the human rights. But what the human rights monitoring bodies look, look for, they look for good faith efforts toward um, realization and they call that progressive progressive realization. There's a human rights principle of non-discrimination and equality that is uh, really crucial, I think, has been giving us part of that, that firm conceptual basis for the concept of equity and disparities. And those principles prohibit actions, not only those actions that have the intent to discriminate, but the actions that have the effect of discriminating. And that's really important. I'll bet there are some lawyers in the, in the room, but the idea of, de, if you think about de facto discrimination, it is very hard to, to prove intent on, on almost any issue. But with that clause that the actions are prohibited that have the effect of discrimination, you can then look at patterns and say, well, this shows a discriminatory pattern regardless of whether we're saying anything about the, the intent, and that's really important. And that, if you take that seriously, uh, that's then the basis for calling for affirmative action to narrow the gaps in the fulfillment of rights that have been there historically. So another issue that I think has, there's been, um, has been a challenge for a lot of people in this field, if they say, if equity and disparities are about closing the gap between different groups, groups who are better off and worse off. Well, which, which groups? Um, and I uh, have worked very closely with the new, NI, relatively new NIH Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. And uh, at the time that they moved from being a center to being an institute and received somewhat more resources, not, I think, not sufficient, but somewhat more resources, all of a sudden, since now they're called an institute and people assume they had lots of resources, a lot of interest groups approaching them and saying, you're, you know, your institute, what are you doing about veterans? Um, what about people with autism? Certainly worse off than people who don't have autism. Um, what about men's shorter life expectancy? And what about LGBT groups issues? So another way in which I think human rights agreements and principles give us a lot to address that kind of challenge is that they specifically name vulnerable groups. 
and they list groups that are characterized by any, any of these characteristics that I've listed there, racial or ethnic groups, skin color, religion, language, nationality, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity. They talk about sexual minorities. That's the term that they use, but that's what they're referring to. Age, disability, geography, political affiliation. And they don't say these are characteristics that historically have been used as the basis for discrimination, but it is very clear from the context that that is what the principle is, um, that, uh, that that they are groups that have experienced social exclusion or marginalization, uh, and that that has made them, that has made them vulnerable. Uh, this is something that I think we can be, can be investigated and decided if a, a group comes to, so here's the Colorado Trust, and somebody's coming and saying, I think you, you know, I know you're committed to health equity and reducing health disparities, and you know, why won't you address the issues for my, group, you can say, well, let's look at the documentation about uh, who has the most wealth, who has the highest levels of education, um, who has the highest incomes, but also what's the history of this group? And so with African-Americans, the history of slavery, of Jim Crow, you know, with American Indians, of genocide and um, forcible removal from ancestral lands, we could also, luckily there are groups that chronicle hate crimes. Um, uh, the uh, groups that have experienced the targeted marketing of harmful goods, um, negative media depictions, slurs that have been prevalent. So I, I think it can be, um, I'm not saying that it's easy, but we, we can say who are the groups that have historically suffered social exclusion, marginalization, um, uh, and discrimination, including de facto discrimination. So with that basis then, this is the, um, the kind of definition of health disparity and health equity that I um, advocate. Um, uh, and this was adopted in Healthy People 2020, um, by the way, which was a big, a big um, victory. But we defined, um, I, I was working with a, with a committee of, of people um, on this, defined a health disparity is a health difference that is closely linked with social or economic disadvantage. Now, how many of you are wondering why we didn't just say a health difference caused by social or economic disadvantage? Is anybody wondering why? Because that's a simpler thing to say. I'm closely linked sounds like a thing an epidemiologist would say, right? Well, unfortunately, we needed to put it this way because if we say a health difference caused by social or economic disadvantage, then what do we do about all of the health outcomes for which we don't know the causes? We've, we've lost them. They're off, they're off the agenda. Um, and. Uh, Part of the, the definition is that health disparities adversely affect groups who have systematically, and what the systematic is in there about, uh, uh, is that we're not talking about an, an exception, that you can show one, you know, one issue on which somebody's dis disadvantaged. We're talking about a systematic, a repeated pattern. So health disparities adversely affect groups who've systematically experienced greater social or economic obstacles to health based on 
characteristics of their group that have been linked to discrimination or exclusion. Um, and uh, so again, it could have been said more concisely, but we had to avoid um, some traps um, because it's so hard to prove cause. Um, so then the definition of health equity, that health equity is the principle that's behind a commitment to, or underneath a commitment to reduce health disparities. They're really, they're really inseparable comments that health equity means pursuing the highest possible standard of health for everyone while selectively focusing on those with the greatest social or economic obstacles to health. And this may be something we want to talk about more in the, in the, in the Q&A, that whole that balance between improving things for everybody versus just focusing on trying to improve, improve the lot of those who've been um, worse off. Um, and so that's what health equity um, involves, but it's the, it is the principle and it's the process that explains why we care about health disparities. And in turn, then, health disparities are just the way we measure progress toward greater health equity. Because otherwise, how, how would we do it? How would we know that we were getting closer to health equity? It would be because disparities between more and less privileged groups were narrowing over time. So a question that often comes up is about equity versus equality. And I, I think that, that can get very confusing. But that equity means, it certainly means equal rights for everyone. And equal rights mean equal opportunities. But it doesn't necessarily mean equal resources. Because those who have suffered discrimination and exclusion, especially where that's entrenched and has gone on over a long time, they need more resources in order to come up, you know, even near the lowest level of the, of the better off groups. So it's not equality in the distribution of resources, equity in the distribution of the, the resources. Um, because we have an obligation to focus on those with the greatest obstacles to fulfilling their rights. And the obstacles here, again, are social or economic. So we're not talking about someone was born with a congenital birth defect, I mean, not, not here. That is, you know, that is an issue, but not, um, but, but not the kind of uh, obstacle that, um, that we have in mind here. Um, and also based on principles that are, that run throughout the human rights um, treaties and um, other agreements, there's an obligation to address not only medical care, but also the non-medical determinants of health that research, particularly over the last two decades or more, have shown us are the most powerful determinants of who gets sick in the first place. So once we get sick, it's medical care that we want, but it's not medical care except in very rare circumstances that determines who gets sick in the first place. And so if you're committed to the right to health, the right to the highest attainable standard of health, then you are committed to reducing disparities in all of the determinants of health, health care and the non-healthcare determinants as well. Um, and um, to underscore the fact then that not all differences in health are 
what we mean by the term health disparities. It's confusing because unless someone knows, it sort of knows the, um, the, the area, they'll, they'll take the word disparity at face value and then it'll just mean difference. And I think that that's, you know, that that's unfortunate. Um, but we're not talking about all health differences or even all health differences that warrant attention. And I, I want to um, emphasize this, that I think sometimes some people get hung up about, well, you're, you're telling me this isn't a health disparity, but this is really important. And, and the fact is there are millions of health differences that are really important and that public and private bodies actually, you know, absolutely should be responsible for doing something about it. It's just not part of the health equity agenda. And I think if people can realize that, we're not saying that this is all of public health. It's not. We do have to think about the averages. Um, but when we're focusing on disparities, we're focusing on bringing up those who've been worse off, um, bringing them higher. And so it's, it's a particular subset of differences in health that strike us as, as unjust. Um, and that they have to be, in order to qualify, we can't have uh, the, you know, a difference like the uh, younger adults have better health than the, the elderly. It, that's not plausibly avoidable, at least with current technology. Um, uh, it has to be, according to current science, it has to be believable that that disparity, that that difference could be narrowed um, with eff efforts. Um, but we don't have to prove that we know how to narrow it. That would eliminate way too much. But there are systematic health differences that adversely affect a socially disadvantaged group. And this business of saying it's a, it's a health difference that adversely affects a socially disadvantaged group, there what that should resonate with is the, the value of sort of giving somebody a fair break, that somebody has a, it's a double whammy. If you're disadvantaged, in virtue of your socioeconomic status or in virtue of being in a disenfranchised racial or ethnic group. And then you add to that disadvantage on health and you realize that health is necessary to overcome disadvantage. You're saying this is, just, this is compound disadvantage and this is really unfair. And, and so I think if explained in that way to the public, we can, it can resonate with some pretty widely held values. So we don't, again, but we're not talking about what causes them because we want to avoid that trap because we don't know what causes a number of important differences. So the, a health disparity may reflect social disadvantage and in many cases we know that they do. Um, but in some cases we, we may or may not, um, we may or may not have some evidence that it's, that it uh, is caused by the underlying social disadvantage. It's enough to say, but this difference puts an already disadvantaged group at further disadvantage with respect to their health. health. So finally, um, just to say that a lot of people um, in the field have at, at least at certain times have tried to approach this issue of what is, what are health disparities? What's health equity? How do we measure them? In a very technical way, that was go what was going on in that, uh, when I, I told you about what got me interested in this, where leadership within an international organization got onto a real technical track. 
Um, but it's not just a, <clears throat> it's not a technical issue. <laughs> it's about values, <clears throat> and values are at the core of the concept of health disparities and the concept of health equity. Um, the equity is the principle, it's an ethical principle, but it also resonate, resonates with these human rights um, principles. And then health disparities are the metric by which we can tell whether we're, we're getting closer or further away. It is certainly not technical. It has very big implications for resource allocation in a lot of, in a lot of sectors. And I've seen how that plays out for the uh, NIMHD, the NIH Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. Um, so I think that pursuing equity, if, if you want to pursue equity, you've bought into swimming upstream against the prevailing currents. That's, that's what it is, because the status quo is um, favorable to those who have the most power um, at the time. And so inevitably, you are swimming upstream, uh, and you really better know which direction you're headed in. Uh, and that's why I think that these, um, that, that these definitions, uh, for better or for worse, are very important. And I, I want to add just, just one last um, remark um, that some of you may be thinking, because I made such a big deal about using human rights agreements, human rights principles as a uh, basis you know, for work in the area of disparities and equity. And a lot of you could be thinking, well, how, you know, human rights agreements are probably violated more often than they are, you know, than they are um, respected. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that's true. But the reason that I think that human rights principles give us a solid basis is that the, um, the issues that we need and the principles that drawn upon for this way of clarifying what disparities and equity are, these are codified in treaties, some of which have legal force, some of which um, not, that were hammered out over long periods of time among groups of people from all over the world. Uh, and at a minimum, it reflects a consensus about values and about aspirations. There are some important human rights treaties um, to which the U.S. has not signed on, I'm ashamed to say, but we've signed them. And signing means that you agree in principle with the values that are there. You're just not willing to make yourself subject to monitoring. Um, so virtually every country in the world has at least signed on to the agreements that have these principles in them, and I think it gives us just a, a tremendous resource. And now I'm really looking forward to the, the next phase and the phase after that, as distinguished author and journalist T.R. Reid will join me here. Hi, everybody. I, I love coming to this building. I think it's called Italianate Rococo. This is at a time in Denver when that was hot among our architects, and look what they did. And just as one citizen of Colorado, I just want to say thank you to the Colorado Trust for your work throughout our state to make us all healthier. Thank you. 
And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Paula a couple of questions that have occurred to me reading her materials, but your questions are going to be more interesting than mine. So go ahead, just raise your hand and ask a question when you're ready. Um, in terms of health disparities, compared to the other rich democracies in the world, how does the world's richest country stack up? Well, get out your handkerchiefs or your um, napkins for your eyes, um, and probably some of you know, know this. I mean, we rank at the bottom, actually, among the affluent countries, and, and I'm sure some of you saw, because there was a lot of press coverage, January 9th, a report was released from the Institute of Medicine and the National Research um, Council, and I, I was one of the report authors. Uh, and in this report, we looked at just scores of health indicators across all age groups, and with very few exceptions, the U.S. was at or near the bottom on every single one of the, the health indicators, with just a few uh, exceptions, and in all age groups except uh, over age 75. If you make it to 75, you're going to have a longer life expectancy than in, than in, other, than in other countries. Uh, and are the disparities for the socially disadvantaged groups worse in the U.S.? Worse than, than the general France, population. France, Britain, Germany. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And I think the group felt that um, the dis disparities social disparities were, um, uh, un were probably very big contributors. I have to be very careful about what I attribute it to, um, to because we, I mean, in an all fairness in, in this study, we didn't have the time to do a thorough, uh, uh, do justice to the issue of what, you know, what explains these. And, and we were sure that there wasn't just one neat answer, unfortunately. We, we were all hoping there would be, but it's clear that it was multiple things. But one of the things that we learned was that uh, the, actually, if you just look at uh, affluent people in the US and compare them to affluent people in some other countries, specifically the UK, we do worse even doing the affluent, and we do worse, you know, we say, well, what if it's just whites? Because we knew that people would think about, oh, well, is this due to um, minorities, disparities for minorities? And the disparities are worse for minorities, but if you just do whites and white comparison, we're, we're right there at the, at the bottom. And my hope from yeah. this depressing yeah. thing, my hope is that it will uh, open things up for people to be willing to look at what other countries do, because I think we've had this attitude that we're just different, nobody's as good as we are, you know, I don't want to hear about how they do it in France, uh, and I would think, one would think that it would be reasonable to say, well, maybe we should at least consider what they're doing in other countries, not to impose it in an identical form here, but um, to adapt it potentially for what looks like it's, it's working. Yeah, there's a book about that. You, know. <laughs> uh, you referred obliquely today to the World Health Organization, and in your papers you talk about the World Health Report of 2000. I don't know if you know this, this is the famous or notorious report that rated all the world's healthcare systems and rated the world's richest country 37th. Are you aware of that? Um, and you are pretty critical of this report in your papers. 
Uh, what do you think? Are they roughly right that we rank that low and are health disparities one of the reasons for that? That's a tough question. Um, I do think uh, maybe they weren't that far off on um, where we would rank comparatively among countries. I think that the criteria that they used were flawed, so that, that might be just luck <laughs> that, it, <laughs> that, yeah. it, you know, that it came out. Um, and you were the one with the expertise on the, the studying the, uh, the healthcare systems, yeah. comparative healthcare systems. I mean, m my understanding from colleagues who were experts in that is that just they kind of grabbed some criteria that they thought sounded kind of cool and, and used them, and that ha they hadn't been tested at all, and that they were. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. I think it was rigged. Myself. But my, the uh, thing that bothered me more about the World Health Report than that yes. issue was what my talk was about, because um, the same people who uh, developed, you know, in a very short period of time, a way of ranking all uh, healthcare systems in the world also said, let's get rid of the old-fashioned way of thinking about health inequalities and health equity. Let's stop making, let's stop comparing the health of the poor with the health of the rich. Um, because when we do that, we are prejudging what the difference is due to. That was their reasoning. And they didn't say also you shouldn't make racial comparisons, but it was implied by what they were, by what they were saying. And um, you just see who's the healthiest and who's the sickest, and then you start to study why. But it just leaves, leaves out a minor issue, which is that it, it takes takes the disparities equity issue off the agenda, and particularly for policymakers who aren't going to end up reading some research paper that, you know, in its, you know, 20th page, now they get to where they're thinking about what, you know, what this might, you know, the bearing that this might have on disparities and on equity. You know, you've, you've just, you've lost it. Uh, I was kind of struck when you talked about uh, African-American babies are twice as likely as white babies to have certain problems. And then you said, we don't know why. Well, wouldn't an explanation be those African-American moms aren't getting the prenatal care that white moms get? Is that not the reason? I wish that oh. were the explanation because something would be easier to do something about. But that was an assumption that many of us in the field made um, but then the med big Medicaid expansions, Medicaid maternity care expansions, came in um, at the end of the 80s and 90s, and they really caught on. And you know, within 10 years, you could see—I mean, it really dramatically narrowed the gap between African American and white women in the receipt of prenatal care, and it did nothing to narrow the disparity, which is a lot of what got some people like me into focusing more on that disparity in health than on the disparity in, in, the, in the care, realizing yeah. that the care wasn't going to explain that. I will say, you know, I'm trying to be very responsible in saying we don't know what causes that di yeah. disparity, and that's true, but a number of us have have some hypotheses about that that are very, um, they're, they're biologically plausible. We couldn't prove that that's the way. So, for example, a lot of us 
believe that the stress, the chronic stress that African Americans, or at least most African Americans, experience from very, a very young age on, and that affects them regardless of whether they're in a poor family or a wealthy family, uh, and regardless of whether they experience any like overt incidents of somebody calling them a name, a racist name, um, or something you know overtly racist happening to them, that uh, I, I think there's re reason to believe, including some evidence in the literature, that people can carry around with them this awareness. There's the constant awareness and the vigilance. And when's the next time somebody's going to say something that's going to be offensive? And if they do, do I speak up or do I just let it go? And that the, the kind of chronic stress that could be associated with that, carrying that around um, inside you, and in addition to the overt, overt incidents, that this could be, um, that, that that could be one of the elements. Um, but it's, it's not simple. The disparity is greatest among college-educated, higher-income women. The black-white disparity is biggest there. The, among poor women, the black-white disparity is pretty small, actually. So, and you say, so why would that yeah, be? Yeah, that's mystifying. Why, why would that be? And one explanation, hypothesized and not proven, is that well, what if you're a college-educated black woman, you're probably moving professionally in a mostly white world, whereas maybe you're more seg segregated if you're, you know, less educated. Could, you know, could that be it? And people are actively doing um, research um, now to try to, to try to tease this out. If you don't know the reason, you can't say it's an unfair disparity. See, that's why you don't want that in your definition of the yeah. disparity, saying yeah. that it's the, I think um, an advantage of that definition is that you could say it's unfair, uh, appealing to that principle of the compound disadvantage, that it's a um, worse health, you know, in somebody who's already at a disadvantage um, based on their, based on social, you know, yeah. social criteria, and that that's unfair for people to experience that double disadvantage. Mm. Um, so you could call it un, un, unfair. You could, you could say that, but it gets it, it 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 can get tricky. How many of you have um, run to concerns about? Do you use the word inequity? Inequity instead of disparity. Yeah. And that's wrong. Well, no. Shall I answer it? Or well, I, it, it brings. I read it, this line in your one of your papers. Quote: Nevertheless, most audiences naturally assume that work on health inequities is work on health equality. Yeah, I naturally assume that. But it's wrong. No, I think it's it's right. Oh, okay. But <laughs> but I use the term inequity really sparingly. I probably didn't. Did I use it during my talk? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, 
And some people are using inequity, they're substituting inequity for disparity. Yeah. Because responding to that issue that they want everybody to be clear is we're talking about injustice. So it's, yeah. But the problem with that is that somebody's gonna call them on it and say, how can you call that, that black-white disparity in low birth weight yeah. and inequity when you don't know the causes? It's, it's strong language. So I try to, I try to reserve it. I mean, I, I use the term yeah, inequity, but, uh, but I try to reserve it um, very, uh, for, you know, for very um, particular circumstances. And, and I also, I think it really turns a lot of people off initially too, because it sounds so morally judgmental. Yes, yeah. And negative, Normative. whereas equity is, it's, it's morally judgmental, but it's positive, it's, it's not accusatory. Uh, as you said today in your talk and in your papers, you build a lot of your work around concepts of human rights. And uh, so let me ask you about that. Uh, I can understand the argument that people have a right to health care. Uh, I have a little tougher time with the notion that people have a right to health, which you talk about. It sounds like you're arguing with God if you say, I have a right to health. What do you say? Well. I agree with you, and I think, in a way, it's, it's unfortunate in the way it got framed in the human rights principles, because that is what, that is the reaction of a lot of people. What do you mean the right to help? What, what can we do with that if somebody is born, you know, yeah. with congenital conditions that nothing could have prevented and, or nothing that we know of, uh, you know, has their vi right to health been violated. So I do think it's unfortunate, but it's, it's there. And I think that um, if we say, okay, they, they just define it as the right of everyone to the highest attainable <clears throat> state of health. So there's, in that attainable, there's some acknowledgement there that there, there could be some differences that we start off with that aren't ones uh, that are equity issues. The highest attainable state of health and that what, what I think the field of health equity has to give to the folks in human rights, that there's been a lot of criticism about the vagueness of right to health. How would you operationalize yeah, that? Yeah. And what's the highest attainable state of health? And this is where I think we have a gift for them, which is that you can operationalize the highest attainable state of health as the health that's experienced by the most privileged group in your, in society. your society, and it's even a low, a low standard because there could be, you know, there there, there could be healthier, even healthier yeah, sure. groups. But you say there is no biological reason why everyone shouldn't be able to attain the health of people with incomes, you know, four times the the poverty level, um, and so I think the human rights folks should use that. I, I think I saw a question down here. Yeah. How can we overcome a health disparity, I don't know if I'm using the right words yet, um, without first addressing education disparities? Because I, I think health is just too complex for the average person, whether it's their methodologies to access, to read a cereal carton, or know what the latest technology is, or the resources. And that's whether you're college educated or not. So that was what I wanted you to address. 
Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up, and I don't think you can achieve health equity without education equity. And there's just, there's a huge body of literature that shows the tight links between education and health. And I think there are, you know, we can trace, there are a lot of different causal pathways through which it could, it could do that, but they can be documented. Um, and uh, and I, I think they're probably, I think that the, that aiming for equity in education is one of the most important things that people who care about health equity can do. And, it, and then in the support for it comes from the human rights principles that it's the, uh, the right to, there, well, there's a right to education that's in there without, but of course it doesn't define what level. So, but, um, but that's there to refer to. But it's basically the right to the, con the conditions in which one can be, can be healthy. And in a way, a lot of people wish that they hadn't had the right to health, but the right to the conditions necessary for being healthy. Yeah, that um, sounds fair. And yeah. then, yeah, yeah, it's better. But education is in the, it's got to be in the, in the center. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. You. Oh, I'm sorry. All right, okay. Hello. Um, thank you so much. I appreciated the things that you shared. My name is Lisa Roy, and I got to see one of your colleagues speak um, from California this week, Dr. Anthony Ito, who's doing a lot of research in California, and found that interesting because, you know, again, he is looking at zip code, and zip code is determining life expectancy, and being able to drill down and include research on chronic stress and its impacts on especially low-income communities. So my question along with that is just, he had some recommendations around ensuring that there's youth leadership, leveraging partnerships, collaborative efficacy, changing what he called the narrative, which has to do with how we deliver services around health, and then um, giving the power to residents by educating them and allowing them to get involved in um, changing policy. So I just wanted to know if, if those are the kind of kinds of things you're also looking at with your agenda. Well, I think um, well, I have so much respect for Tony Eiten um, and uh, doing a little work with him right now on those on those concepts. And I think a lot of them. I mean, the, the justification for fo focusing on them could also be found in the in the human rights principles and and. Um, it's the collective efficacy, it's empowerment. It's a technical term for empowerment. Um, that uh, I think that's, that's strong that's there in the human rights, uh, human rights doctrine, that it's building people's, people's agency, that it's not, that we're talking about entitlements and not about charity and uh, helping people to be able, um, be able to uh, do what they need to do. So to, to pursue health. So I, I think that's great. Yeah. Hi. Um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I work in a health clinic, and I was thinking about the, um, the comments about the mothers on Medicaid and that when that disparity or when that change in access occurred that didn't change the disparity. And as a healthcare provider, we're always looking at is the care that we're providing actually making a difference? And so I think about people's access to a provider that will give them information that means something to them and that they can connect with. 
and how if you have a provider that you can connect with, you're going to take the information and do different things with it than if you have somebody who's very strange and, and odd to you. And so I'm wondering if any of you smart scientific people, it's kind of a soft concept that's difficult to quantify, but if you give someone access to care that is not uh, meaningful to them culturally or in the same language that they speak, is there any research being done to sort of quantify that difference so that the mothers who received may had Medicaid, maybe they all had Medicaid and they could go to the doctor, but they uh, didn't connect with their provider. There was no medical home feeling for them. I'm just wondering if there's any work being done to sort of measure that. I think there are. Um, have you heard of centering pregnancy? So the, um, it's a, an approach to prenatal care that emphasizes bringing uh, pregnant women together in groups. And uh, so there's health education in the groups, but the groups also are mutual support groups. And one function of them is to break down isolation, social isolation also. And then there, when the women need exams, they, you know, they have a, go into an, ex an exam room alone. You know, they don't do their exams in a, yeah, in a yeah. group. So that's what some people, it's a group prenatal care. No, you know. um, and they've shown some really exciting results, and it's almost the only evidence. I mean, that's where they have shown an, an ability to improve birth outcomes, pretty convincing studies of that. So there are a lot of people who've been interested in applying that you know, more broadly. Um, I'm working with the uh, California State Department of Public Health on a redesign of the statewide black infant health program, which formerly was sort of traditional. Um, uh, this was not, this is not prenatal care, but these are storefronts where women would come and be able to get some one-on-one -on -one, uh, support, you know, and help getting to prenatal care, getting into prenatal care, and there's been a transition to a model that emphasizes more um, the issues that one of your colleagues was just bringing up in terms of, of capacity building of the women them, themselves. Uh, and we, if we could have done centering pregnancy, we would have done it, but we can't because the, the way care is organized, there aren't enough pregnant women at one site to, to do it. So it's the closest we could come to centering pregnancy. We're trying that with the, the whole statewide program and crossing our fingers that that, that might help. Um, but we're also aware that, you know, to expect that just one, thi one thing is going to turn things around, particularly for groups that have been so um, disadvantaged and for, you know, for generations. Uh, and I think sometimes we, we get defensive or we, sh we shut up when, you know, somebody said, well, did that work? And no, you know, it didn't work, but it, it was one thing. Would that have worked if we had put it, brought it together with multiple things, including attention to issues like education and including attention to issues like the fact that for many of the health outcomes, you're not going to see, you make, here's the intervention, you're not going to see that, the, the relevant outcome for decades. Um, and that, that's true for low birth weight and, and preterm birth. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, so we have to be careful about what we decide to abandon because it hasn't worked, but there is a lot of interest in that. Yeah. In general, I think there's a lot of um, feeling that we're powerless about this. So what should people do about disparities if it's going to take decades to find results? A short answer is think about intermediate outcomes. Don't set yourself up for failure, you know, and really be aware of the fact of, you know, what's the time frame during which an intervention could pay off. And we're doing that with the Black Infant Health Program. We're not saying we're going to turn around, you know, low birth weight and, uh, and preterm birth. We're going to be measuring them. But a, a lot of, you know, to think about it, to have a sort of logic model and think about what, you know, what during the time frame you'll be evaluating you could realistically expect to happen because it's on a, a, a pathway. But I, I, I think there's a, a lot of wisdom and experience in this room. Of, uh, I mean, you know, whether you call it disparities or equity or whatever, I think most of the people in this room have been in the trenches for a while trying to achieve those, achieve the elimination of disparities. So, so I, I don't want to go on with more about answering your question, but if others would like to answer, what do you do in the face of these daunting obstacles? Yeah, well, Matt, how about it? You've made this a, a big uh, emphasis of the Colorado Trust. What's the answer to that? What should we do? Well, it's a great question because it's exactly the work that we are currently at the Colorado Trust wrestling with and uh, thinking about how what we learned in the environmental scan, how our focus on health equality, health disparities uh, <clears throat> will, will go from an idea to funding priorities for the trust going forward. As I've worked with the trustees, though, I tried to talk about this kind of balanced portfolio, and it gets to mm -hmm. the issue about things that will take a long time and things that we could address now. And so if we can think about upstream and downstream, the people falling in the river, the people being pulled out of the river, right? I think part of the portfolio has to be looked at these higher risk, slow burn, long-term investments that will take a decade before we start to see the movement in health equity that we believe is important um, and, and transitional, that really translates the fabric of society and health in, in Colorado. Um, so that's part of the thing that I would hope that we would focus on, is making sure we look at the preventive efforts, the social change efforts. But while you're doing that, you can't ignore the people who are down the river drowning and so trying to balance the portfolio with strategies that might in some sustainable way find the tipping points for direct service delivery and addressing other uh, health disparities more directly in the short term, uh, I think we need to look at as well. And given that, you know, I always tell people our resources are not meager nor are they infinite. You know, how can we balance those so that a decade from now we can look backwards and say we've made a difference? I don't know if that, that's a very that's a uh, high yeah, level uh, yeah, answer, yeah. but that's kind of where we're at. That's a good answer, that's don't you? That's a great answer. Yes, ma'am. I really appreciated you calling attention to the impact, or at least the potential impact that you're looking to measure of um, long-term stress and chronic stress. And um, 
also, I would think that trauma and how does trauma come into play in, in terms of how that impacts people's um, health outcomes. And I just wanted to point out that both of those are examples of where um, mental health and physical health are so inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, we often talk about in the mental health world, we talk about that um, health disparities don't show up in terms of prevalence of mental illness, but they show up in many other ways. And I think that's just a great example of how. Yeah, now there's a good question. Do you find these disparities in mental health too? You know, I don't know that literature so well. The little I do know, I know that the patterns are confusing and people raise questions about, you know, so who gets diagnosed, yeah. you know, in this way versus that way. Um, yes, sir. It's somewhat confusing. I, I guess I've gone through an evolution in, in how I've thought about health disparities. Um, having grown up in um, STD and HIV uh, prevention, a lot of times we saw disparate rates among African Americans and Latinos compared to whites. And then I start reading the literature um, from the uh, World Health Organization where they start talking about health inequities. And it was such a breath of fresh air because finally someone was talking about social justice issues. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like the longer we delay talking about this, this um, the fact that many of the disparities we see are because of inequities, that we're not going to have a useful conversation. And it also goes back to um, giving us this framework that we can use when we're talking about it. Don't talk about change as if it's going to happen in the, the next five years. These, are chain, the, these conditions came about over centuries of time, especially when you look at the conditions of African Americans in this country and certainly uh, uh, Native uh, uh, Americans in this country. These things happen over a long period of time, and we need to own up to the fact that these were injustices that were perpetrated against the people. They didn't happen overnight. It's going to take lo a longer period of time to fix them. I'm really glad that you, you spoke up to say that, and what you said was very eloquent. And I do, I have mixed feelings about the inequities issue because I am drawn to it for just the reason that you articulated. It just puts it out there that this is what we're talking about, is social justice and makes it explicit. The, um, and I think that maybe non-scientists can get away with it more than than scientists can. Um, you know, the real reason that I haven't adopted that is because the, I want to have things on the agenda for which we don't know the causes yet. And I don't want to be backed into a corner by somebody yeah. who's going to say, well, how can you, you know, call that an inequity, the black-white disparity in low birth weight? We don't know. We don't know what it's due to that. And you're calling it an, an in inequity. So that's really the main reason that I, I have felt uh, that I have stayed away from that. But I, I do have mixed feelings because I, I like that, that, you know, the explicit, you know, s statement of what the principle is. Now you mentioned, it's interesting, you mentioned that it was such a breath of fresh, fresh air to see something coming out of WHO referring to inequities. Um, the rhetoric in other countries is really different from here. Uh -huh. And I learned that the first time I did some work in Geneva with WHO, and I remember I turned in a draft, you know, for a first assignment, and I thought, oh, they're, you know, they're going to get rid of me because this was too, this was too left. 
-hmm. you know, and they loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I realized at a certain point that what gets labeled as radical uh -huh. here is just kind of mainstream public in health, yeah. human services in yeah. most of of Europe. Um, so, you know, they're just they're all those questions about communica communications and what's going to work. But I, I have had moments when I've thought to myself, well, let the non-scientists use inequities. <laughs> I can't, but. Um, be, because I like that about it, and because I've seen this, you know, the, I mean, the need to be clear that that is what we're talking about with this. It's not, you know, it, it's not just all of, it's not all of public health. It's, it's a very specific part of it, motivated by a concern about justice. So I'm, I'm glad you said we, that. Do we have one last question back there, was I told? No, I think I cut things off. So. Okay. Paula, thank you so much. And thank everyone, you. thank you so yeah. much for coming. Thank you. I also want to thank uh, Paula and Tom. It was an outstanding presentation and, and, uh, and dialogue. <laughs> um, I, I want to point out that there's a lot of new information available to you on the issue of health equity. I wanted to specifically point out a new series from the iNews Network, Losing Ground, which is also working with Rocky Mountain PBS. Uh, you can learn more about the series on inewsnetwork.org slash losing ground. And my understanding is that their first public discussion is this evening uh, at Regis and Thornton. So that's another additional resource. Um, I also want to just point to the things that you have on your desk. There's an evaluation form, and the trust actually is hoping to provide uh, additional learning lunches like at this on the issue of health equity, and your feedback will help us out a lot. I want to repoint out the uh, issue brief on health equity and the Affordable Care Act, and then I want to point out that we've given you some homework. So <clears throat> we hope that these events are not uh, just a come and listen and then uh, go on about whatever you were doing before. We hope it challenges us as kind of the tipping point for thinking about health equity, health disparities within our, our own work life. So we provided you with both a paper from Dr. Braveman and a question guide that we hope you'll consider taking back with you to your own organizations and other settings where you might find them useful to engage in the dialogue and kind of uh, raise awareness and knowledge overall in your spheres of influence. So this and the uh, slide set will be available on the Colorado Trust website around uh, February 15th. We'll actually have a video of the presentation for you to see as well, and I hope you'll take advantages of that. Um, there are... Uh, there, there are many people that have been involved today that I just have to recognize. The team who put together the event today, uh, Chris Armijo, Maggie Frazier, and, and Courtney Ricci, I really appreciate uh, all the work you put together. And then the room itself is, is a joint effort of staff with many jobs who come together to make sure these happen. So I want to thank Elisa Bourne, Marianne Davis, Heidi Holmberg, Jill um, uh, Johnson, Ginny Lehman and Michelle Chater, all of whom helped uh, the event uh, happen today. 
And then finally, I want to thank you all for coming and participating. Have a great afternoon.